Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Song of the Mountain, a podcast where we talk about the deep and profound ways that stories impact us and the kind of lives that those stories might be calling us to live. Today, my honored guest is Katie Hendricks, author, catalyst, disruptor, amazing woman, who is here to talk to us about so many things, but among the top are body intelligence and how we can create new stories that don't just boil down to conflict. With that, let's jump in. So before we start, let me give a quick introduction to Katie Hendricks. In her own words, she is an evolutionary catalyst, contextual disruptor, and freelance mentor who has been a pioneer in the field of body intelligence and conscious loving for 50 years. Dr. Hendricks is the co-author of 12 books, including the best-selling Conscious Loving, At the Speed of Life, and Conscious Loving Ever After, How to Create Thriving Relationship at Midlife and Beyond. She specializes in translating concepts such as commitment into directly felt experiences that lead to new choices and creative engagement. Now, hearing that, you might be wondering, why is someone who is a specialist in body intelligence and relationships in a podcast about stories? Well, as we're experiencing a story, your body is communicating things to you. And if you are not in tune with your body and what it tells you, you're likely not going to be in tune with the kind of things stories are telling you. The other reason I really wanted to have Katie on is this issue that she talks a lot about, which is the upper limits problem, which is that we create a ceiling for the amount of goodness we're willing to accept in our lives. And once we hit that ceiling, we're going to start sabotaging ourselves to fulfill that belief. And I think this is potentially one of the big impediments to us allowing the goodness of stories into our lives is this upper limits problem. The next thing I want you to really listen for, which is later on in the interview, is this mind-blowing concept that she really introduced, which is so many stories have this strange mix of magic and wonder with war and conflict. And it, we asked the big question, why do stories have to always boil down to a war between the good guys and the bad guys? All right, enough introduction. Let's jump into the interview. Hello, Katie, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your work at the Hendricks Institute? I realized the other day that I have been an entrepreneur since 1978. Wow. I have been working and generating and creating as an entrepreneur. I had one big job. And as a result of that, I decided to be an entrepreneur basically because I didn't like people telling me what to do and had the opportunity to respond to what I saw was really going on in the world. So what we've been developing, Gay and I, since 1980 is based on the intention to live our lives in a kind of unity so that we're both whole people we're joining together to create, to co-create, and to celebrate each other. And what we learned along the way is what turned into our books and our trainings. We have a big focus on what do you love to do that can also be of service in the world that we call finding your genius. 
And I discovered along the way that my genius is in facilitation and in co-creating with people. And so I've spent 30 some years and a million and a half air miles going around the world, teaching our seminars about how to create loving relationships and how to use the wisdom of your body to help guide you. So rather than just head knowledge, because our society is getting so head-centric, what happens when you involve what we call body intelligence, your whole body learning? And so that's been endlessly fascinating for me since 1980. And so that's primarily what I do, although I've written 12 books with Gay on body intelligence and on relationship. My real love is what's wanting to emerge here and what's wanting to happen between people. So that's really what I most love to do. Mm, I love that. And I love the idea of body consciousness and bringing the fullness of all the inputs we have. What happens in your experience when somebody just pays attention to the cerebral and doesn't incorporate the body intelligence input? It's becoming so much more prevalent in society, primarily because of the devices that people use. And one of the things I notice is that people's ability to notice what's going on around them has greatly diminished. People have gotten more two-dimensional because basically you're making two moves. You have your head up and you have your head down. And that move plus decreasing the learning through your whole body, because if you're just learning visually and auditorily, you're basically ignoring your body. And when that happens, the input that comes from your body, which is the bulk of what your mind can work with. See, your mind can only work with the sensory input that comes. And sensory input gets to your brain four to 10 times faster than your thoughts. So your body sensations, your breathing, your emotions, all of those, that input that can enliven your intelligence, your collaboration gets flattened out. And so people tend to become both energetically more diminished, but also the ability to connect with others has become more and more primitive because we're not really in the dance of relating that has been so much part of our history. When tribes would encounter each other, they would encounter each other from a distance and then there would be all of these kinds of rituals like circling and how are we going to approach and the rituals of greeting. Is this an enemy? Those are all body intelligence. How you notice, is this an enemy or is this a friend? We've lost a great deal of that primarily because we think it all happens up here. And in addition to that, we have 2,000 years plus of the culture telling us head is good, body is bad. Head has all the important, valuable things. Body has all that icky stuff like sexual feelings and anger and all those things. We have to control those and suppress those and favor just logic, Cartesian logic. So all of those things, I think, have diminished our animal smartness and also the inheritance from generations and generations of what people have learned about how to be in the world, that comes to us through our body intelligence. So what we call when someone has a gut feeling, that's an example of body intelligence. So if someone will say, 
mm, there's something off about this, or this doesn't feel right to me. I've learned to really attend when someone says that, then I help them explore what's going on that you're noticing that is making you say this. And it's almost always body sensations, something will happen with the person's breath, and they may actually get an image or a memory that comes from the body sensations. Our inner landscape is like our last frontier. People have gone into outer space, but they haven't gone into inner space. All of the things that we've learned that we can draw on to help us create the solutions that we so desperately need right now, not just for ourselves, but for our society. Our ways of relating to each other, they've completely gone chaotic and people have alternate realities. You know that we're not basing things in our body experience because if we were, we would be feeling the same things. All mammals feel the same things. So we all have the same emotions, all animals, all of us have the same emotions and those inform us. They're like a super highway to really being able to function more effectively. We wrote a book years ago called At the Speed of Life that is about body intelligence and we incorporate that with our relationship work and all of our work because how I'm experiencing myself and how I'm connecting with you is totally based on how open I am to all of the intelligence that's racing around inside. And I have another quick story about the importance of body intelligence. When my parents who are, have passed now, where the, when they were getting to the end of life, my mother had a massive stroke and was hospitalized. And what I realized after that happened was that my father had relied on the structure of his life for my mother to plan that. And so when she wasn't there, he had nothing to draw on. He had no inner life. His experience of his own wants, his own desires, his being able to reach out to other people based on what he wanted, didn't have that. And we supplied, I supplied him with People, friends of mine who could go and be with him and would take him out to lunch and kind of substitute it for my mother. But I'm wondering how many people face that when they don't have reliable social networks because they don't have anything to draw on, like their own dreams, their own creativity comes from that inner landscape, like music and art and all of the ways that we can create, even creating a new suit or creating a new way of walking around the block, those all come from that uprising of our body intelligence. And so I think it's really important for people to befriend themselves now rather than relying on the input from entertainment and from all of those things that are coming at our eyeballs all the time really prevent us from Ah, opening up to what's going on inside, what are my impulses that generate an ongoing creativity that's not dependent on if the electricity goes out, we're all in trouble. Because yeah, how am I going to get on my iPad? How am I going to, how am I going to get streaming? How am I going to get on TikTok? You know, where, and that's where a lot of people get their nourishment. And so when that's not happening, people go to conflict, to create that sense of excitement. 
and generate that sense of engagement in life. And that's a p- part about what I know you wanted to talk about today, the upper limit problem comes from that. I really think that the upper limit problem is something that's wired in. We think of it as a personal problem. There's something wrong with me, but it's actually wired in. We're not wired for things going well. We're wired up to notice where's the threat because for thousands of years, we've needed to notice where's the threat coming over the hill. We come from ancestors that could assess threats more quickly than their neighbors. So all of the people who were roaming around and looking at the butterflies, those are not our ancestors because they got smashed more quickly. So it's only been in maybe the last 200 years that we've had the luxury to look at having more leisure time, not to have everything tied into survival. So what do I really want? And how can I increase my ability to enjoy life rather than working on life? So one of the big stories is life is hard and then you die. Life is hard. You've got to work hard. You got to, you can't just lie back. You've got to struggle. You got to compete. You got to beat the other guy. You got to be there first. And that whole competitive adrenaline run is spiraled completely out of control now, where adrenaline is a short acting, non renewable drug. And the world has been trying to create something that's more addictive than adrenaline, not successful yet, but that's one of the big things going on in the pharmaceutical world is. How can we replace adrenaline? Because adrenaline rules until you've created a new story. So part of our new story is how can I expand my ability to enjoy things going well? Old story that's based on the upper limit problem, which is you can only feel so good and then you crash. So the Icarus story of flying up and then getting too close to the sun, that's an upper limit story. In Australia, they have a story about the tall poppy. They say, don't be the tall poppy because we know what happens to the tall poppy. You stick your head up, snip, snip. Every culture has its own version of the upper limit story. And one other that I always found just dreadful and also fascinating came from Germany. I did a lot of work in Germany over many years and in Europe in general. They would say, the bird that sings in the morning in the night will be eaten by the cat. Wow, that is (laughs) dreadful. Because it's connected to singing. It's connected to joy. It almost makes me wonder if this is the idea of a jinx which I've subconsciously believed for so long, if something's going well, there's something inside of me that says, don't acknowledge it because somehow you're going to be cursing yourself by acknowledging the goodness you're experiencing right now. Exactly. That's exactly an upper limit story. And what we find is that every culture has that and every personal culture, like in your family or in the neighborhood where you grew up, there are other kinds of stories like that. My dad used to say to me, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. So it's basically watch out because to get it to your mouth, there are all kinds of things that can happen in the meantime. And my mother used to say, just wait, 
just wait for what? Just wait is something bad is bound to happen. So for people to acknowledge that we're all deep in that tea of something's bound to go wrong. So what we consider the upper limit problem is that you feel good and then something happens and then you feel bad and then you dig yourself out and you start to feel good and then you criticize yourself and then you feel bad and then you start to feel good and then you forget to do those things like yoga or resting or singing that that allow you to expand and then you start to feel bad again. So we're used to feeling bad and digging ourselves out. We are not used to feeling good and expanding that ability to feel good. We're just not used to it. So that whole, that whole style of organizing society is part of the big problem right now because we basically don't have any new stories about things working. And that's a lot of what we've been assisting people to create over the years out of co-committing to expanding our ability to give and receive more love every day. That's bottom line commitment. And that's one that we return to and recommit to over and over again. I love that. There's so many things that you're saying that relate very directly to this, this topic of the podcast on stories and how they impact us. I'd love to go back to body intelligence as related to stories. So something I'd love to hear more about and that I've experienced is when I start paying attention to what's happening in my body during a story. And a lot of what I'm asking people to do is to listen to that when you're reading a novel, watching a movie, something. I've noticed there are these stories or moments in stories where something happens in my body that I don't immediately pay attention to. And it takes sometimes many stories whacking me over the head to get it. So I'd love to hear more about that of like body intelligence and listening to that as we experience something that may be fantastical and imaginative. Yes. Stories have been our way of passing on vital information for thousands of years, both through oral traditions, but also through singing and dancing singing and dancing together in community. So many of the stories that are embedded in our bodies have come from gathering together and creating rhythms together, creating stories that emerge out of those repetitive motions that put us into a trance state in which deeper information that we carry in ourselves can emerge. And it can emerge in visions. It emerges in ways of moving together. And then someone will say something or will have a spirit animal move through them, which is really an inner story that becomes then alive in your communication with others. There's a whole group of people all over the world and many different schools of ecstatic dance. They call it all different kinds of things, but it's basically getting together in community and moving together with music. So we've been doing that for thousands of years, and I think that's where new stories are going to come from. And the story that I'm really interested in is us honoring the the instrument that each of us are, because I think of the work I do also as being a conductor. I know you have that in your background. And so 
what I think of is that each of us is an instrument in the larger orchestra. And our job is to play our instrument with joy and to play it fully. And then that adds to the harmony, that adds to the possibility without taking anything away from our own individual contribution. So part of the body intelligence comes through what we generally call feelings. And there are two kinds of feelings. There's sensations, like sensations of warmth and pressure, contraction and openness. And then there are emotions, which are basically body sensations that have organized into a repeated pattern. Emotions are molecules in motion, and they move in a regular way that we can open up to. But part of the old story is feelings are dangerous. Feelings, you got to be really careful about feelings. Feelings are get you into trouble or feelings, touchy, feely, all of that stuff. If we could just get rid of it, we'd be much better off. And we've had the problem since the Renaissance that we've been favoring moving up. Like the what goes around in your brain is more important than what's happening in your body. And I think it's the major thing that's gotten us into trouble in a way that we don't honor all of that wisdom that comes through our bodies. The whole aspect of our training is about opening up to dialoguing with yourself, being friends with yourself. And I think if people would, particularly men, boys and men, were taught to honor their feelings, to appreciate their feelings, to be able to be sad. See, guys can't be sad and women can't be angry. And just that, the amount of trouble that's caused in the world. So the new story that I'm wanting to create with people is that feelings are a super highway to more creativity, more connection, and more solution focus for all of the different things that are going on in our communities that need our attention like yesterday, like last century. I love the focus on how unlocking this body intelligence brings up parts of our subconscious that can be latent. And so much of how I experience stories is in that subconscious realm. So when we think about what's actually going on there and how do we make that emerge, that's such a key thing for understanding what is this story trying to tell me, what's going on inside of me here. One of the things that body intelligence does, and we know this from lots of research, is that when we're imagining, it actually activates our body intelligence. So we're not just thinking about it, we're experiencing it. So in sports, if you watch people making a really healthy golf swing and you watch that, you don't even practice, there have been studies that you hit better just by watching. And it's not that you're thinking about it, it's that it's activating your body intelligence and a little roadmap in there for how you can open up new patterns of movement. So imagining walking, imagining moving inside has as much power as actually moving. There are lots and lots of studies now that are giving attention to the power of our body intelligence that's been ignored, truly has been ignored and made wrong for over 2,000 years. So there's still a lot of stigma, you know, that 
that stuff that's not really based in science. It is based in science, but the stories haven't yet caught up. So I think that's a lot of what entrepreneurs and people who are really interested in creativity are assisting people to create new ways of making new stories. So basically, body intelligence allows you to open up instead of to close down. Because closing down is protecting and takes you into fear. And opening up takes you into contact with yourself and contact with the world and also moves you out of fear into growth. So your body can't do both. You can either protect or grow. And if you acknowledge how you're protecting, and then you make some shifts like taking some easy breaths or moving in some new spontaneous way, and then you move into new story, you can make shifts very quickly and in a way that's actually fun rather than hard work. <laughs> it's reminding me all of my conductor days because as a conductor, you're trying to channel this the music, this kind of magical, mythical, ethereal thing that's very hard to describe into body movements. And that your body, as you are projecting or moving your body in a certain way, the orchestra will respond subconsciously, intuitively in that same way. It's like you mentioned the golf swing that I learned about. The little neuroscience I know about mirror neurons that they fire when you watch something as well as when you do it. Okay, so you watch a, someone doing a golf swing, something very basic, and you in your subconscious are imagining doing that. I'm curious then, what about things that we watch or read about that are not things that we think we can do in this world? So for example, you watch Superman flying or you watch somebody, Harry Potter, cast a spell. Why do we love doing that? I'm curious to, to play around with that idea a little bit. I think that People love magic, like the rabbit out of that, the, <gasps> that we get wonder. What human beings love more than adrenaline is wonder. And right now we have adrenaline really mushed up with magic and wonder so that it becomes aggressive. So even if you look at all of the magic stuff, it ends up, it's always a war. It ends up the good guys against the bad guys. And that is, that duality is run by adrenaline. So when I'm scared, which is when I'm in adrenaline, which is incredibly addictive because you get this, when you're adrenaline, you get this, <laughs> this, and that's a lot of what happens in movies when you have the guy, they're fighting with each other and that's activating all of this whoa, all of this sense of power, but it's all run by adrenaline. And adrenaline drops off very quickly. It's a short-acting drug and it's not renewable. So what people do then is escalate. So they escalate the drama, they escalate the fight. They're making these bigger and bigger roller coasters and ones that rock you straight down reset. The other day there was this roller coaster. I thought, I'm never going on that. I'm never, it literally dropped you straight down. So it's like this gravity. So we have to keep inventing new ways of stimulating our nervous systems because they've been way overstimulated by adrenaline and not stimulated by connection, by presence, by being cared for, by the kind of attention that allows us to open up. 
So all of this puts us into a war footing, a fight footing. And when I'm in fear, you're the enemy. What our unconscious does when we're in fear is we get, that's the enemy so I can do anything. So we get this either or, you're either against us or you're for us, that kind of polarity. And there's no nuance, but there's also no meeting. There's no connection because we're in our camps. Like it's either me or you, buddy. The other thing that happens when we're in fear is we get stupid. So this whole elegant problem-solving brain that makes music and makes connection and creates wonderful architecture, that goes offline. So the only thing we have is smash, boom. And that's what we've gotten really good at and not really good at, whoa, how are you? How are you? It looks like something's going on over there. Oh, I'm feeling like, oh, something I'm wanting to give you attention right now. It looks like something's challenging for you. Gone for most people. So the new story of opening up to our inner landscapes as a source of nourishment and connection. So moving from us versus them to connection really comes through particularly befriending fear and turning fear into creativity. I love your description of the conflict between how we have magic and wonder mixed up with war is the reason we gravitate so much towards stories that have that war because that's what our internal landscape is wired for. So what would it look like to have stories that have that wonder and awe, but not constantly end up in battle? I just had the movie Avatar come to mind. I was so mad at the end of Avatar because you know what they did. They went to war. So they had all of this beautiful, really the magic and the wonder and the connection. I mean, literally connecting to the earth, getting wisdom from the earth, celebrating. And then it ended up in war. I was so mad. It broke my heart because of the possibility here of creating a new story for humanity. And then at the end, same old. Well, it's like what you said with the upper limits problem. That is literally just reinforcing that same idea. Here's this wonderful world, but just wait. I'm so glad you brought up Avatar because that has been such a dear movie to me for so long. And for the ways that you just talked about, the connection. So this literal connection with an animal, with their kind of weird octopus tentacle thing out of their... I just was so moved. Joining of our, what we think of as our divine and our animal, joining in such a magical way, which actually isn't so magical. It really is the way it is that you can enjoy all of this magic that comes from celebrating your own creativity and the collective creativity that comes through you. So I really want new stories that are about us joining with each other to create a world that where beauty is our beauty is our standard rather than war creating beauty creating connection and right now we still have a kind of contempt for that people go all oh, right sure and what are you going to do when the war comes around the corner we forget that we keep doing that it's not happening to us we keep doing that and there's the self responsibility thing this isn't some bad guy out there we are producing that 
it hadn't occurred to me that the stories we often create are reinforcing those same beliefs over and over. So I wonder if we had James Cameron here in the interview, what would we tell him to change about Avatar? What would be the progression of the story if we say, why does it have to end in war? The breakthrough would be them finding a way of making that connection with the people who look like they were the enemy. Them walking around on the planet and the planet would come up through them with these new possibilities that would wake up their nervous system in a new way. The fact that they felt they had to have the war, the us versus them, is such an it's such a powerful old story that people just drop into it because when fear comes, you can't think. And to go, oh, 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 here they come. We have to go. And we go into those old strategies. I'm not even sure I'm going to see the new one whenever that comes out because I'm still mad at him. I can imagine someone saying when they had the war, it caused all the tribes to sort of unite. But they didn't have to have a war to do that. It's crazy how addicted we are to win-lose situations and how so many stories reinforce that. Like there has to be a bad guy. That either or, that all comes from the experience of fear. We don't realize, particularly really since 9-11, we've been surrounded by fear. And if you look at how much it's in the media, how even just recently, the whole last administration was run on fear. Fear, fear fear-mongering, making people the bad guys. So That story, if we don't change that story, there will not be human beings on the planet. And there may not be a planet. It's so urgent that we change the story. And we're right now at the effect of the story. We think that we human beings are so creative. We're basically still in that old story. But what we get is that adrenaline. And it's like a little landmine that goes off inside and it's like, whoa. And we think that we're getting some juice from that, but we're actually straining the power grid inside and it creates stress. It creates lots of disease, but it basically, it creates estrangement from others. Yes. So many powerful things you're saying. I think about what happened in World War II and how fear in one sense started the whole Nazi regime and the effort to blame the Jewish nation for all their problems, which justified all the atrocities that followed. Yes. When I'm not handling my own fear, I project it. I put it out there and make that person or that tribe or that nation the bad guy. And then if I can just get rid of them, everything will be fine. So the big task is to loving the bad guy in here and getting the bad guy enrolled in loving fear and moving into creativity. I love this. The beginning of the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leaders, which is obviously based heavily on your work, and they were, as you said, graduates of yours, is they tell a story about Tim, who is this leader who They have this sentence where he's drinking his espresso, he's looking at his news, his adrenaline is running, and he feels alive. But what he doesn't realize is that this is some cocktail of caffeine, adrenaline, fear, all of these things mixed. So we can feel alive when we're in those moments or we're watching a movie about a war or a battle, but we confuse that with life because we haven't experienced the alternative which is you can have life without the adrenaline. It's actually 
not the peak of our experience. Yes, that is really at the heart of the global shift that we're encouraging is creating a new fuel source. And creativity, connection, friendship, co-creativity, appreciation, those are fuel sources that can expand, that are renewable, that fill your emotional reservoir and can be a source of ongoing nourishment throughout life and expansive joy, expansive fun. You don't laugh very much in a war, (laughs) Uh, but we around here, we have laughter all the time and creativity, even with speed bumps, even when things are like a little or something, we we play and create our way through those rather than polarizing and making each other wrong. This is all amazing. Katie, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you so much. And I appreciate so much you're bringing your background to this podcast because Your conductor background and your tech background really all is about creating something that looks like it's invisible, but has incredible power. What a great description of story and myth. That's why I love that and music. It connects us to this invisible something that is incredibly powerful, though, even if we can't see it with our physical eyes. Yes, we can experience it for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, with that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thanks again. This has been wonderful. All right, everyone. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed all the amazing insights from Katie Hendricks as much as I did. With that, I'm Jesse Livingston, and I'll see you next time.